At a little after midnight on the 8th of March 2014, passengers of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 were called to prepare for boarding. By 12.38am, all 227 passengers and 12 crew members were on board and ready to make their journey from Kuala Lumpur Airport to Beijing. Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah was given clearance from air traffic control to prepare for takeoff. The Boeing 777 shot down the runway, reaching a speed of 180 miles per hour before taking off at 12.42 a.m. The 227 passengers came from 14 different countries and included five children. Malaysia air traffic control was in charge of tracking the plane until it passed into Vietnamese airspace. MH370 climbed steadily to 35,000 feet and moved northwards over the South China Sea towards Vietnam. It could be seen as a small blip on the screen as Lumpur radar radioed the captain at 1.19. Malaysian 70, contact Ho Chi Minh, 120.9, to which Captain Shah replied, Good night, Malaysian 370. The blip continued to travel across the radar screen until it reached the outer edge and disappeared from view. 20 minutes later, at 1.39, Malaysian air traffic was contacted by Ho Chi Minh, city control in Vietnam. Alarmed, they wanted to know why MH37 had not crossed into their airspace yet. For the next 20 minutes, both Malaysia Airlines operations at Kuala Lumpur and air traffic control at Ho Chi Minh desperately tried to locate the missing plane without success. At 6.30am, friends and family who were waiting for MH37 to land at Beijing International Airport were told that the flight had been delayed. Just before 7.30am, Malaysian Airlines had no choice but to release a press report stating that flight MH370 had been lost. A rescue operation immediately began, focusing on the plane's last known location. Seven different countries sent planes, helicopters and boats to search the area between the South China Sea and the Gulf of Thailand. In all, there were 28 aircraft and 34 ships employed in the search. Initial efforts concentrated on two oil slicks just off the Vietnamese coast, but nothing of any interest was found. With all the modern advances in aviation technology and safety, how could a Boeing 777 plane carrying over 230 passengers just vanish into thin air? The early search in Vietnam proved to be fruitless, and it became clear to authorities that there would be no way of knowing where to look for the plane if it could not establish what had caused it to disappear. There had been no distress signal sent, so the plane had to have exploded in mid-air, either by deliberate action or by a devastating mechanical failure. Using primary radar records from air traffic control and data from the Malaysian Air Force, it was established that flight MH370 had actually still been flying for at least an hour after the captain's final transmission. The plane's transponder had actually pinged on Vietnamese radar for five seconds after passing out of Lumpur airspace. Then MH370 had gone in completely the opposite direction by making a sharp turn to the southwest, going back along the Malay Peninsula and flying around the island of Penang. This maneuver would have been performed manually and required great skill from the pilot in order for the plane not to spiral out of control. From there, it flew to the northwest of the Strait of Malacca and by 0222 hours, the MH370 was somewhere over the Adaman Sea. It went beyond radar range and disappeared somewhere to the north of Indonesia. Had the plane's transponder been manually switched off? The plane had been flying for hours after the last radio transmission, and yet it was absent from any air traffic control radar, so it would seem to be the only logical explanation. Perhaps this transponder had just failed to work. Was the pilot trying to exhaust fuel supplies and steering the plane away from populated areas before making an emergency landing? 
If so, why did Captain Shah not send out a distress signal? Had this happened because the plane had been hijacked and the pilot needed to take drastic action? Was it possible that the plane had been targeted by members of the Uyghur Muslim community? The Uyghurs had been in an ongoing ethnic conflict with the Chinese government for over 80 years and had recently been involved in several violent incidents prior to the MH370 disappearance. There were 157 Chinese nationals on board the plane, so it was conceivable. Then, as checks were made to the passenger list, it was also discovered that two men who were aboard the plane were not who they claimed to be. Luigi Maraldi from Italy and Christian Cozel had both had their passports stolen whilst on holiday in Thailand two years earlier. It seemed that Malaysian Airlines had not checked the Interpol database before allowing whoever was using the passport to board the plane. On investigation, the two passengers were both identified as Iranian nationals. There was speculation of terrorism because of the Middle Eastern connection, but it turned out that the young men were traveling from Frankfurt in Germany to claim asylum. Then, some unexpected information came to light. The London-based company, Imasat, had a geostationary satellite over the Indian Ocean, and the MH370 had intermittently linked up with it for six hours after the plane had disappeared from air traffic radar. The plane stayed in a high-altitude, high-speed cruising pattern during this time. The link-ups between Imasat and the plane were seven distinct electronic pings that showed the plane flying across the Earth. The only problem was, the last ping only provided one single point of data as to where the plane was on a line of latitude, so the exact location of the aircraft could not be made. Although it would seem that at 02.40 AM, the plane turned south from Sumatra in Indonesia and flew in a straight line for a very long time towards Antarctica. The data then showed the plane making a rapid, steep descent before crashing into the ocean. After a good deal of evasion and stalling, the Malaysian authorities eventually admitted that this was the case. Because of this delay in information, the searches were in the South China Sea, which was completely the wrong place. If Malaysian officials had told the truth right away, then floating debris could have been found and the plane's location identified. The black boxes might even have been recovered. Now, the likely point of the crash site was thought to be somewhere in a narrow belt of the southern Indian Ocean. This area was within Australia's marine search and rescue region, so it was agreed that they would lead the search. But in an area of approximately 400,000 square miles, the search was futile and was called off in April 2014, after just two months. Blaine Gibson is a self-styled Indiana Jones-type character. He identifies himself as an adventurer, explorer, and truth-seeker. When he heard the news of MH370's disappearance, he became fascinated by the idea that a modern passenger plane could just vanish into thin air. So in early 2014, he decided to go in search of the truth, believing that the debris from the plane would simply wash up somewhere on the thousands of miles of coastline that make up the Indian Ocean. He began his searches there, first in Vietnam, followed by Myanmar, the Maldives, and Mauritius, but had no success. Then, in late July of 2015, which was 16 months after the plane went missing, a piece of flaperon from MH370 was found on the beach of the French island of Reunion. Sadly, it was proof that the passengers on board had not survived. Following up on this discovery, and after consulting experts on currents and winds in the Indian Ocean, Gibson decided to try looking on the north coast of Madagascar and the coast of Mozambique. It was there that he found a horizontal stabilizer panel from MH370. In June 2016, he found eight more pieces of debris in the first two weeks, 
It could now be established that when the plane came down, it shattered into hundreds, if not thousands of pieces. In 2017, he arranged to turn over any debris found to the Madagascan authorities, who in turn would hand it to the Malaysian Honorary Council for shipping back to Kuala Lumpur. In August of 2017, that Honorary Council was assassinated. Gibson assumed there is a connection to the MH370 and now keeps himself off-grid as much as possible, although he still holds out the hope that he will find something that would explain the plane's disappearance. The question still remained as to why the plane was flying over the Indian Ocean in the first place. It had obviously been flown manually for a considerable part of its revised route. There was no evidence of a terrorist attack and no Mayday transmission had been received. Could either the captain or the co-pilot have been involved in some sort of murder-suicide plot and deliberately crash the plane? Fariq Abdul-Hamid was the co-pilot and he was quickly ruled out as the perpetrator. He was planning to get married. He had no known history of insubordination. He was young, optimistic, and Flight 370 was his final training flight before he was able to be promoted as an esteemed Malaysian Airways pilot. It was Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah whose recent behavior was standing out as being dubious. On paper, he was a top-rate pilot with over 18,000 hours of flying experience and was qualified as a flight instructor and examiner. When the FBI examined his flight simulator, they found that he had experimented with a route that followed the same course as Flight 370. It was one of hundreds of practice flights recorded, but the only one that he ran through in stages, continually skipping the flight forward and subtracting the fuel used until there was none left. He was having an affair at the time with a doomed flight and his wife had left him. He was also obsessed with two models on social media. Friends described him as lonely and sad. His life was not the model of professionalism that Malayan investigation had painted. It seemed that they had wanted to keep their findings as secret as possible. Assisting in the search effort was an assortment of engineers and scientists who volunteered their services. They called themselves the Independent Group. One of these engineers studied the radar data at length and believes that during the sharp turn the plane climbed up to 40,000 feet. This would cause it to depressurize, meaning that the passengers in the cabin would have lost consciousness and died within minutes. It could have been a way to keep the passengers subdued for the long flight ahead. If the captain had sent his co-pilot out into the cabin as a distraction, then this would have allowed him to lock the cockpit from inside and continue his plan without interference. The cockpit had hours of oxygen supply due to four pressurized masks compared to the cabin. The masks there were for emergency descents and only held about 15 minutes of air. Then Shah could fly where he wanted until just before running out of fuel, he crashed the plane into the ocean where it disintegrated on impact. It is one of many theories. Others include instrument failure, a lightning strike, a fire, an act of God. There are claims that the planes have been found intact in the Cambodian jungle that it was shot down by the military, or that it flew into a time warp. Many possibilities have been put forward as to what transpired on flight MH370, but few explain why the plane was flown off course. Could it have been an intentional act of murder by a mentally disturbed pilot? The answer lies with the Malaysian government, but for now, they are remaining uncooperative and would rather that the whole mess just went away. Until then, the disappearance of flight MH370 remains one of the greatest mysteries in aviation history. Flight MH17 Sadly, it would be less than four months later when Malaysian Airlines would be struck by another tragedy. In late 2013 and early 2014, tensions began to surface in the Ukraine capital of Kiev. Protests were being held because there was anger at President Viktor Yanukovych. 
he was refusing to sign a treaty which would align the Ukraine with the European Union, an alliance that the younger generations felt was needed to improve economic prosperity in their country. Instead, Victor was deepening relations with Russia. On the 18th of February, hostilities reached a head. When police fired rubber bullets into the crowd and snipers began shooting, the protesters fought back with rocks, bats, and Molotov cocktails. In all, 1,000 people were injured, 69 protesters, and 13 police died in the ensuing chaos. Finding himself on the brink of a revolution, the president fled to Russia, where he asked for assistance. The eastern area of the Ukraine is much happier to be allied with its Russian neighbors. The people there are spread out across the countryside and are largely Russian-speaking. In the southeastern Donbass region, close to the border, the police consider themselves Russian and are afraid of being marginalized and persecuted, as many Ukrainians turn more towards the West. Not surprisingly, it's there in Donbass that counter-revolutionaries began to emerge. And although it is denied, there are reports of Russian soldiers in the region that are helping both the Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republic by directing military operations. 2014 was the worst year of the conflict in eastern Ukraine. The separatists now wanted unification with Russia, and Russia was happy to push even further into the Donbass region, annexing the Crimean area with a combination of its own soldiers, volunteers, and mercenaries. On the afternoon of 17th of July, the passenger plane Malaysian Flight 17 was traveling over eastern Ukraine on a scheduled flight from Amsterdam in the Netherlands to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Using the standard route to Asia from Northern Europe, MH17 was traveling over Germany, Poland, and the Ukraine at an altitude of 33,000 feet. The pilot diverted the plane slightly to the north to avoid thunderstorms before returning the plane to its original routing over Ukrainian airspace. Without warning and with no mayday signal, suddenly at 16.20 local time, flight MH17 disappeared from the radar screens. But this time, unlike flight MH370, there was no question of where this plane had gone. The Boeing 777-200 had shattered into a million pieces and was scattered all over the field of Donetsk Blast, about 30 miles from the Ukrainian-Russian border. All 283 passengers and 15 crew died. 80 of them were under the age of 18. Because of the armed conflict that was raging in the area, all flights over eastern Ukraine by civil air traffic were restricted from using lower levels of airspace. And although flight MH17 was flying above this restricted area when the plane was above the eastern Ukraine, a BUK surface-to-air missile was launched. The warhead travels at almost three times the speed of sound. Inside the 314M model warhead is an explosive core. This is encased in two layers that are made of iron fragments. The missile is radar-guided to its target and then detonated with a proximity fuse. The warhead exploded above and to the left of MH17's cockpit, and approximately 800 of the iron fragments perforated the plane, instantly killing the two pilots and one crew member. The blast from the explosion caused the cockpit and the front section of the plane to separate. MH17 disintegrated as it plummeted towards the Earth. At the time, three other commercial airliners were flying in the same radar control area. So why was it that civil aircraft were allowed to fly over a known war zone? With the conflict escalating in the weeks preceding the incident, several military planes had been shot down, and reports were made of more powerful weapons reaching higher altitudes than before. The BUK missile was able to reach heights of 80,000 feet, which far exceeded the altitude of flight MH17. Adjustments had been made to flight levels in early July, with the level being raised to 320 to protect military planes from ground attacks. It wasn't until the murder of everyone aboard flight MH17 that the airspace was closed to commercial flights. 
It was obvious that clues about the murder weapon would be found in the wreckage of the downed plane. The crash site was horrific. Witnesses spoke of seeing hundreds of dead bodies that had been stripped of their clothing due to the wind speed during the fall. Some of the bodies were still strapped into their seats of the plane with their seatbelts. Many of the bodies were intact and looked as though they had just fallen asleep, whilst others had been shredded because of the explosion. Journalists arrived at the site, which was just southwest of the village of Habrov, to find it being guarded by a squad of armed separatists. There were plane parts strewn about in the surrounding fields. Ukrainian emergency services had sent people who were marking any bodies they could find with white flags. The 20 square mile area was also strewn with suitcases and clothing and shoes, as well as thousands of pieces of the plane itself. The Russians were quick to deny all responsibility for the attack and began to plant conspiracy theories through as many media outlets as they could to push the blame onto the Ukrainians. The Russian Federation created as much confusion about the incident in a short amount of time as possible. The idea was to bury the truth in many bizarre conspiracy theories rather than give out just one clear explanation, which could be easily disproved. Russia's main vehicle for this was Twitter, where a large-scale misinformation campaign was used. On the 21st of July, just two days after the Twitter assault, the Russian Federation organized a press conference. Russian officers made an exceptionally long briefing. They offered evidence, which they said proved that it was definitely the Ukrainians who were responsible for the downing of flight MH17. One piece of evidence was a 13-second video that showed a surface-to-air missile being transported in a town that was under Ukrainian control. The video, however, was fake. With the use of a flight map, the Russians claimed that MH17 had suddenly deviated from its course by making a huge swerve. The implication being that Ukrainian air traffic control had deliberately tried to make the plane a target for the Russians. This was also later proved to be false. A slide was presented which purported to show an aerial shot of a Ukrainian military base where BUK missiles were supposed to be stored on the day of the crash. The slideshow showed that one of the missile launchers was missing from the site on that particular day in fearing that the launcher had been moved to deliberately target MH17. Only, there were clouds all over the slide, which obscured any features and terrain around the base, making it difficult to know where and when the image was taken, earning it the nickname of the Cloud Slide. After presenting evidence of a ground-to-air missile launch, the Russians then presented evidence which they said showed a Ukrainian Air Force Su-25 jet on their radar flying directly at MH17 just before it came down. Now they were suggesting that the plane had been shot down by a fighter jet when they had just demonstrated how it had been downed by a missile. They closed the conference with a denial that the Russian Federation had supplied any anti-aircraft missile systems or any other similar equipment to the Ukrainian rebels. As the plane had started its fated journey from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, it was not surprising that there were 193 Dutch nationals on board. The investigation became the responsibility of the Dutch Safety Board and a joint investigation team known as JIT. The researchers analyzed the recorded data from the aircraft voice and data recorders, as well as any debris gathered. They were able to reconstruct part of the fuselage skin of the aircraft. They determined that the crash was not due to pilot error, bad weather, a catastrophic mechanical failure, fire or explosion. Using computer simulation, they concluded that the plane had been downed by the detonation of a BUK surface-to-air missile, which had exploded close to the cockpit of the plane, driving hundreds of pieces of shrapnel through the fuselage. As the front section of the aircraft broke away, the passenger section, wings and tail, stayed in the air for approximately one minute before also falling to the ground. In September 2016, a Dutch prosecution team submitted evidence that the missile had been launched from territory in the Ukraine that was held by separatists. 
and that the weaponry had been brought across the border from Russia and was returning back there that same day. In June 2019, they filed charges against three Russian men and one Ukrainian for the downing of flight MH17. All four of the men have ties to the Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. The leading suspect is a former colonial with the Russian security service named Iga Gherkin. He was commanding forces in Donetsk in July of 2014, but quickly returned to Russia just after Flight 17 was brought down. The chances of the culprits ever being brought to trial is remote, as Russia does not extradite its own citizens, and the Russian Foreign Ministry has said that it rejects any findings made by JIT. It claimed that JIT just wanted to discredit Russia in the eyes of the world, stating that any evidence against the Russian Federation had been fabricated by the Ukraine, while evidence offered by them had been ignored. In July 2015, Russian President Vladimir Putin rejected a UN Security Council tribunal, calling the idea counterproductive. JIT continues to collect evidence in the hope that one day there will be a criminal trial and the men responsible will be held to account for the murder of 283 innocent men, women and children who were aboard Malaysian Flight 17.